The choices of faith when it has to grow up. And I think you'll see where I get that title. The text is Hebrews eleven twenty three to 28. Hebrews eleven twenty three to 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they saw that the child was beautiful. This is interesting. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, and here's the phrase, when he was grown up. The choices of faith when it has to grow up. Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. There's, there's the verb. Always look for verbs. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, and he was looking to the reward. Let's pray together. We know just because of our religious upbringings and instruction that your word is precious. It is another thing to experience it as life-giving. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll come among us this morning. You, like in the book of Revelation, you walk among the lampstands, the church. You walk among and you look. Forgive us, forgive us for the lack of impact, the idea that we are not the only ones in this room, that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us, really with us. It makes us want to ask again that you would cleanse our hearts of all sin whenever we're in your presence. And uh, help us by your spirit to glean life from your word. In your name I pray, amen. When I say the name Moses, what's the first thing you think about? And it probably isn't his faith. When I say Moses, you think of Law. When I say Moses, you think of Mount Sinai. When I think, when you, I say Moses, you think of probably the strongest statement of divine law in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. That's what Moses is famous for. And our writer's point is to restate one of his foundational principles. It's almost back at the beginning of the chapter we're studying now. Hebrews 11.6, he says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that principle includes Moses. And so the idea is that God never ordained law as the means of pleasing him. Even those under the law can't fully please God by mere law-keeping. So God never imagined a pathway into his presence by a list of rules and as long as you keep most of them, 
you're fine. Everything God says, including the law, has to point to and find its fulfillment in God the Son, the person of Jesus Christ, and faith in him. Christ dying on the cross for our sins. So, as our writer continues to... What he's doing is he's reasoning with these Hebrew Christians who are being pressed by their Jewish peers to come back under the law. All of the law. The sacrifices, circumcision, holy days, the offerings. Pressuring them to come back under this Judaic law, it's brilliant of the writer to bring up the person of Moses and to link him with his faith. It was Moses' faith that pleased God. And so the faith of these Hebrew Christians who are being so persecuted and pressured, the faith of these Hebrew Christians to whom our writer writes, it isn't, it isn't a new concept. So it isn't a break with Abraham, whom we already looked at, Isaac, Jacob, and it isn't a break with Moses. These great patriarchs of Israel, so our writer says, these great patriarchs of Israel would be pleased with these Jewish believers for their faith in Christ. That's his point. I have three or four thoughts. Point number one. The circumstances surrounding the birth of Moses were an appropriate picture of the calling of Moses. Look at Hebrews 11.23. It's a really interesting verse. By faith, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents... Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses, when he was born, and these parents, that's the they, they were not afraid of the king's edict. Consider this. Moses will be called by God. We all know this. We know this from Sunday school. Moses will be called by God to bring deliverance to Israel from who? Egypt. 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 They're in Egypt. So Moses is going to be called by God to bring deliverance to Israel from their Egyptian oppressors, and Moses is born at a time when the persecution against Israel was particularly severe. He was born in Egypt precisely at the moment when the persecution against Jewish infants was particularly extreme and violent. If you don't know the story... Here's how it works. Moses was, Moses was delivered as a baby, protected. He was delivered in order to become a deliverer. 
That's the point I'm trying to make here. Moses was delivered to become a deliverer. Here's the background. Our 23rd verse speaks of the king's edict. See that right there. Doesn't say much of what it was. This edict was really the second phase of the king's plan. The first part of the plan, remember this story, the pharaoh arranged a plan to have the midwives who would come to the Hebrew women giving birth. And the plan was to have the midwives kill all the male babies as soon as they were born. So if it was a girl, they would let it live. But if it was a boy, the midwives were told to kill the baby. Now, I'm condensing it. The midwives were afraid to do this. They were afraid to do it. They feared God judged God's judgment. And they said that, well, they, they give birth to these boys so fast, we, we just can't keep up. We, we, can't, we can't do this. It's the second part of the Pharaoh's plan. It was the command, Exodus 1, to throw every son into the Nile. That's what it said. Commanded all his people, Exodus 1, And all his people doesn't mean all the citizens. It means all the soldiers, all of the law keepers, all of those legal people under the Pharaoh's authority. He had all of them instructed to throw all the male babies into the Nile. This is when Moses is born. Okay? This is when Moses is born. Right in the middle of this. That edict. That's the one that's being talked about. He comes onto the scene at the highest point of Egypt's wrath against male infants in history up to that point. So you have to stop and say, what is wrong with God's timing? How can it be so off? Or is it off? Is it maybe perfect? I think there are several faith lessons here. So this would be 1A. For Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt, he will be greatly helped by knowing all the language and customs of Egypt. Think about it. God sets it up. Moses is going to be raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. And God sets it up so Moses will know the power structures, the educational system, the language of Egypt from the inside out. Moses will grow up with access to virtually everything important in Egypt. This wasn't an accident. It's the brutal edict of the king that accomplishes God's will for Moses. He's hidden in the basket, remember? His mother actually gets to be his nurse. And as he grows up, consider this. There was not 
a Hebrew man on earth who knew more about Egypt than Moses, Israel's deliverer, and God set it up that way. B, and I want to talk about this for a minute. There was no edict of the king that could stamp out God's intended purpose through the birth of Moses. This is surely God's method and timing. So he he activates, he starts the ball rolling. He activates his delivering work when opposition to it could not be stronger. How many times do you watch the news and do you see an edict, a law being implemented that makes the establishment of God's good will on earth look almost impossible? Have you ever seen it happen? Laws regarding same-sex marriage. Laws regarding abortion. Laws passed, set in motion about what's going to be taught to your kids in schools. Laws about, about uh, the legal status of transgenderism in all sorts of different situations. How many times have you seen laws come into effect and you sat there... And you thought, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how the, the kingdom of God, the church, how is it all going to survive in this kind of a corrupt situation? Who hasn't thought that? And so you go back to a story like this. There have always been and always will be unrighteous laws. And so right now, whatever political stripe you are, that's not my point. But right now, so you've got uh, the liberal government, Justin Trudeau, and and the idea that if if you don't endorse uh, all of the laws regarding women's health, reproduction, including abortion, that students can't get grants for employment. You have to sign on that you abide by those views. But that's just, I'm not picking on that. There's billions of examples. That just happens to be something that's in the news right now. And then, and then what is our response? And you look at a text like this and the response ought to be, what, what do you think is going to happen? What did you expect? How do you think this age is going to unfold? You start wondering if the future of Christendom on earth isn't just becoming impossible. And then you remember the birth of Moses. You remember his deliverance from the king's edict. Remember the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Remember the way God raised up his strong arm precisely when it was, by all outward appearances, the least likely to succeed. And he does it on purpose. There's a reason we close every Lord's Day saying together, Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever 
and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That's the last thing we say when we leave this place on Sunday. Could talk about that more. Point number two. There are many times when faith rests in a promise that seems far away. Let me stay with that 23rd verse, but clean it up. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. They saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. We talked about that edict. When you read that, you think, wait a minute. The faith, this faith, it isn't really Moses' faith at all, is it, that's being talked about here? The faith being talked about is, it's the parents' faith, right? But that raises a really tricky question. What was, what was their faith in? I mean, upon what foundation was their faith established? The text doesn't say. There's probably only one good answer to that question. We don't know of any direct revelation to the parents about the protection of Moses. Might have been, but again, the text doesn't say. They knew that the king was out to make the people of God extinct, for sure. That's why they hid baby Moses, right? So they knew that much. Take away all the male babies, and in time, there's just no genetic tree left. And yet our text still says Moses' parents were, were not afraid of the king's edict. Why was that? Well, probably they had heard, they would have knowledge of the promise made to their father Abraham. Probably they knew that. They would have known of God's promise both to deliver Israel, because that was said long, long, long ago. They probably knew that Abraham's offspring, that's them, Abraham's offspring was not going to become extinct. That's why they weren't afraid of the king's edict, because God had already promised them that the offspring would number like the sands on the seashore. They probably knew that. They may have even heard Joseph was fairly renowned in Egypt. They may have even heard of Joseph's request. It's cited in that 22nd verse. To have his bones taken along with the rest of Jacob's descendants when they left Egypt. Take my bones with you. So, so they hid They hid. Little baby Moses, he didn't get that name, by the way, from his mom and dad. I'll show you that in a minute. They hid little baby Moses in faith. They had faith, at least faith in this, at least this much faith, 
that the king couldn't possibly succeed in that diabolical plan because God had made promises long ago and those promises were still standing promises. We sang about standing. Your promise still stands. So the circumstances had radically changed. But the promise was still there. But that's all they had. The passing of time doesn't change the power of divine promise. And so we all know that, and that's where you're supposed to say, Amen, that's good, Pastor Don. However, the passing of time can diminish the warmth of faith in a promise. Take heart, take heart around the biblical reminder that our eternal God, our eternal God doesn't feel the weakening of his word over long stretches of time the same way that we may feel a weakening of confidence in that word. Did did that make sense to you? Consider the vast gap between the promise made to the serpent in the garden that an offspring of Eve would one day strike a fatal blow to his head. That's in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Cursed you are above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head You shall bruise his heel. That is the coming Messiah, that he. And then what happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens. Thousands of years roll by. Thousands of years roll by. Satan flourishes. Unhindered. Most of the created order wasn't even expecting the coming of the Messiah who would destroy the works of the devil. But the passing of time, even the passing of much time, does nothing to weaken divine promise. And that was the invisible anchor of Moses' parents. Point number three. How faith behaves when it comes of age. Hebrews 11, 24 to 27. By faith, Moses... When he was grown up, refused to be called, there's the verb, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He, another verb, he considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. I wonder where he got that. Where have you seen that phrase? His parents. Remember? They put him in the river, not being afraid of the king's edict. Moses is not afraid of the king's. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's a lot here. Just this. By faith, when he was grown up, And you can see where our writer is going. 
having shown the background of Moses' faith, the faith of his parents, right? Our writer is anxious to compare that with Moses' faith, what it looked like when it, when it wasn't his parents' faith, but when it had to be his own faith. That transition, by the way, has to happen. Here's what Moses' faith looked like when he had to express it for himself. He's 40 years old. Here's what his faith looked like when he owned the faith that his parents had raised him in. And every professing Christian, especially those raised in faith, every professing Christian needs to own his or her faith personally. You have to use your faith by yourself. You have to discover for yourself what difference your faith is going to make in the way you evaluate life, in the way you consider life, in the choices you make as you navigate your life. You have to work out your faith. The issue of these verses is what does grown up faith look like? What kind, of, what kind of mental calculations does faith make? How does mature, grown up faith process daily events? And so these four verses, 24 to 27, they describe a choice. That growing up faith makes, and they describe an evaluation that growing up faith calculates. Show you both of those. The choice is in verse 25 choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The evaluation is described in 26. He considered. The reproach of Christ's greater wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. A choice and an evaluation. This is what grown-up faith looks like. This is what faith looks like when you actually have to use it. The choice of grown-up faith. The first outward expression of grown-up faith is the outward refusal of of conformity. You see it in the 24th verse. By faith Moses, when he was growing up, refused. He will choose in verse 25, but first refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The biblical account does make it clear that Moses was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You can see that in Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and, see, he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The she is Pharaoh's daughter. They named him. 
This is the adoption of Moses. Whenever you hear the name Moses, remember he got that name not from his Jewish mother, but from the class and might and position of his Jewish, of his Egyptian rather, mother. And the reason this matters is it proves, it proves the power of the, how can I say it, the, the, the cultural counterweight of Moses' faith. Because he is, he is raised as an Egyptian. He's raised as a powerful Egyptian. He gets his name, his identity from his Egyptian mother. Okay? So, so his, his faith, when, when, it, when it says he refused all of this, his faith was not some theoretical refusal of the cultural attractions and pressures of Egypt. I mean, he, he possessed and held as his uh, legitimate birthright all the power and prestige and wealth of the Pharaoh's household. So, so his was not a refusal as if he had all these things to treasure. He had them. Oh boy, we all dream of the things we'd deny for our Lord if we had them. That's pretend faith. Make-believe. Mature faith begins with outward resistance to compromise. Its first manifestation is refusal. Its first manifestation is refusal. It's refusal to be conditioned by the surrounding culture before it is anything else. It's a refusal. It's pretty blunt, Pastor Don. Where do you get that? Well, there you get it for sure in Moses. By faith, he just refused to be called that. But that's not the only place you get this. I have it on pretty good authority... Guess who said this? And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Please notice, the first command isn't follow me. That's commandment three in this sentence. Commandment one is deny yourself. Commandment two is, take up your cross every day you draw breath. Commandment number three is, now, would you like to follow me? So you can hardly miss the way Jesus placed this very same choice right at the beginning of the life of discipled faith. If anyone, if anyone would come after me. That word would is so important because, because it means this great refusal, this great self-denial. You, you have to calculate that when you're still considering whether you're going to follow Jesus. If you're even interested in this, I would submit to you we don't tell anybody that anymore. You got a hurt? Come to Jesus. You got a fear? Come to Jesus. Got a problem? Come to Jesus. Hug, hug, hug. 
Are you, are you thinking about coming to me? Let me tell you what's involved, Jesus says. Everything about the way you evaluate your life, you die to that. Let's be clear on this before you start coming to me. Everything about the way you used to evaluate what's valuable, what isn't, you die to that. Then come. Everything about what you think will fulfill your life and the dreams you want to pursue on your own terms, kill all that, that then would you let you come? Come. And, and it's, it's the same thing that you see with Moses in the Old Testament. By faith, he, by faith he refused. So, this is the first choice faith makes, grown-up faith. By faith when he was grown up. This is not a latter choice of faith. This is faith's first choice. It's the introductory condition of faith. So I said there's a choice. Starts with refusal. And then I said there's a consideration of faith. The ongoing consideration of growing up faith is in Hebrews 11, 25, and 26. Right there. Choosing rather to be mis- mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he, he considered reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures. Do you see something wrong in these choices? He chooses mistreatment rather than enjoying. He chooses reproach over treasures. thinks about this. because, And what, what you see there is Moses, as his faith grows up, as your faith grows up, as my faith grows up, one of the things that happens is we recognize there's an appearance to things that isn't real. Do you see that in those considerations that he makes? So it's better to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And, and the thing about that is, if you don't stop and consider that properly, you'd never make that conclusion. The great handicap of much of the church is limiting the discussion of faith to the things we believe. In other words, faith is discussed merely in terms of its content rather than its calculations. Do you have faith? Yes, I believe in the Trinity. Um, Jesus died on the cross. uh, Resurrection. The coming of the Holy Spirit. The church. I can go through the Apostles' Creed. This is my faith. This is what I believe. And, And good. And James says, so does Satan. So, 
So this text isn't talking about that. This text is talking about not just the items in your faith. It's talking about what does your faith do when it looks at things that appear one way but really aren't. How how does your faith process what it hears sung, what it sees on the internet, what it hears on podcasts, what it sees on blogs, what it watches in movies, what, what, it, what it hears with unsaved friends, what it, what it sees of the dreams of this world, what it, what it understands of power and, and pleasure and prosperity. How, how does, your, does your faith sit back and go, wait a minute, Considered. This is a great text about how grown-up Moses flexed his faith in the exercise. It, it wasn't just an accurate faith. It was, a, it was a choosing faith and it was a considering faith. He, he computed with his faith. That's what Moses did. And here's how he did it. I'm almost done, so hang in. When you see these verses, 25, 26, here's what you're seeing. Moses' faith was constantly comparing. It was constantly comparing things. Not just believing certain things, but comparing things. Here are the details. He compared being mistreated with the people of God. He compared that with... The fleeting pleasures of sin. Do you see that? It's in 25. And then it says he, he compared the reproach of Christ. And he compared that with the treasures of Egypt. That's in 26. Now, now what is fascinating when you look closely is that in each of these couplets. The assessment of the spiritual side is always looked at in its worst possible manifestation. It's the mistreatment with the people of God. It's the reproach of Christ. So so learn. Faith begins by calculating the harshest possibilities of a faith profession in this present culture. Growing up faith is highly realistic. In what it expects. Grown up faith assumes cultural mistreatment and misunderstanding and persecution. That's where grown up faith starts. He chose, he, he chose mistreatment with the people of God, he chose the reproach of Christ. I mean, why does our writer take all the glamour out of following Christ? Why not talk about streets of gold and the blessing of the Lord and miracles? And none of that would be inaccurate. But our writer has a specific goal in mind. Remember the first choice of Moses' faith? First choice is refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 1124. He has rejected Egypt. And all that it stands for. And here's what faith gets. There will be nothing pleasant arriving from that rejection. Correct? Nothing good's going to come there. 
He has nothing to look forward to, apparently, but mistreatment and reproach. Those are the two words used in the text. I didn't, didn't make those up. So, so what is faith to do with that future? How is faith to plan and calculate? Grown-up faith. Well, our writer says faith begins with this expectation. Faith launches realistically expecting rejection for the cause of Christ. This is all Egypt can do with Moses' choice. And it is all our culture can do if you choose to publicly acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Redeemer. You're not going to get anything but poor treatment. Are you aware of that? Are you expecting it? Our text says Moses, that's how he, that's how he thought this all through. I, I don't have to. I don't have to take the pleasures of sin. I can choose not following Christ. I can choose the reproach of Christ. That's the choice of faith. I can be popular with everyone and everything and everyone's view. Or I can be mistreated with the people of God. There's your choices. This is the way faith begins its calculations about following Christ in this present world. One more thing. Faith faith zeroes in on facts that are missed by a culture blinded by sin and self. One of those those calculations is made really specific in the 25th verse. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God... There's joy here than to enjoy, but it's the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Your faith calculations, what grown-up faith looks like. It isn't just believing things, it's calculating, comparing. Your faith calculations must include all the facts. Our culture doesn't. And our culture cannot afford such honesty. The best that can be had apart from loyalty to Christ can't be kept. That's the point. Fleeting is the word our text uses. It's a mirage. It will deceive because there's enjoyment there. There's pleasure there. but it will deceive and ultimately leave everyone empty. The the, the text bluntly says it's fleeting. So I'd wrap up like this. Make sure, make sure your grown-up faith accurately considers the shallowness of the things competing for your devotion. Don't allow them more substance and security than they can possibly give. And when you use your own grown-up faith accurately, you will understand a verse that maybe you didn't understand, where the Apostle John says this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
And to make it more specific, this, now he's going to say, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It is easier for faith, here's why faith can, here's why there's victory here. It is easier for faith to conquer the pull of the surrounding culture when faith has established, considered, processed its fleeting nature. In other words, here's the opposite. Faith will always struggle and faith will always lose to cultural accommodation when we invest what our world can give with a security and a satisfaction that it can't possibly deliver. And if you don't see that and assess that, your faith will never bring you victory. Never. So, so it's not just reciting certain accurate beliefs. It's accurately looking at what is competing for your faith in the surrounding culture. And if you forget, Moses said, I'll tell you what, it's fleeting. Fleeting. Keep in your mind the fleeting nature of the very best that our culture pursues. Keep your mind in a transformed state, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Keep your mind in a transformed state and your faith will follow by overcoming the world. But it's not an accident. Moses, when he reached that age, he chose, first thing, refusal, and he considered the daily calculating that your faith makes. That kind of faith, grown-up faith, that's the victory that overcomes the world. Let's pray.